the resource of the animal kingdom is unparalleled because in one of the other episodes, remember I found a very particular kind of fox screech to make up the the screech of kind of a kind of a demonic spooky presence in shit your pants in that episode. So that's a fox. I've never seen a fox in my life until I moved to London. I'd never seen foxes in real life, had never seen them screech the way they do. It is such a UK thing that je- definitely spooked the fuck out of me the first time I encountered them. I was like, that, what is that? Is that a person? No, it's a fox. <laughs> Why are they so mad? <laughs> Yo, T-Bone, did you produce this? Sounds good, right? This is a conversation with Anna Bogatskaya. Anna is a film critic and host of two excellent podcasts, Final Girls and more recently, Eerie. She's an expert in horror and is also the author of a book called Unlikable Female Characters. We got together to talk about the ways in which sound can chill us to the bone. As always, this podcast is best listened to with headphones on. I'd recommend listening to this one in your creepy attic while a storm rages outside. I'm always interested with like first experiences of horror and stuff, and often they're not like the time we sit down to watch horror that or something spooky. The time we just sort of encounter it. Do you remember the first time you were spooked by media? I have my horror origin story. I I remember it extremely well, and I've told it numerous times. But actually, you've given it a better spin and made me think about it differently. Which is, it's not the first horror film that I remember watching. It's actually the theme tune for the X-Files. It's not even a full episode of the X-Files. It's just the theme tune. And I remember hearing it. I remember watching the, you know, the, the, the intro credits. Every single bone in my body just froze. And I remember turning it off and I couldn't watch it for a while. And then I sort of like, I geared up to it and I remember it in my head so much. And I recently, maybe a couple of years ago, I went to my friend Mike's podcast. He was like, do you want to do X-Files? I was like, yes, I do. But also because I am a ridiculous, you know, research nerd, I just thought, well, I'll rewatch the whole thing. What a great excuse. When I first kind of sat down to do it from season one onwards and that theme tune came on, I had the same reaction. My skin kind of went cold and went really stiff. I was like, oh my God, I remember the living room. I remember where I was. I remember what TV I saw this on. wrong with this picture? The American dream come true, right? Wrong. Nobody believes me, but this is the center of weirdness for the entire planet. Thank you, little paper boy. Eerie Indiana. My home sweet home. Still don't believe me? There's a great essay book 
called The Weird and the Eerie by Mark Fisher, which kind of talks about what it is that makes something eerie, and it's that uncanniness. And maybe because I didn't grow up within the eerie Indiana, I didn't realize it was a thing until well into my adulthood, I met people who love that show. It's like, yeah, I get it, but instinctively that word makes me think of creepy spaces. It makes me think of kind of something that feels wrong, but I can't quite tell why. And that in itself freaks me out. So I'm a big fan of The Twilight Zone as well, and Rod Sterling as being kind of this gateway into something unnatural and uncanny. Having this one guide-like presence to lead you into something weird. Portrait of a Bush League Fuhrer named Peter Vollmer, a sparse little man who feeds off his self-delusions and finds himself perpetually hungry for want of greatness in his diet. And like some goose-stepping predecessors, he searches for something to explain his hunger and to rationalize why a world passes him by without saluting. The something he looks for and finds is in a sewer. In his own twisted and distorted lexicon, he calls it faith, strength, truth. But in just a moment, Peter Vollmer will ply his trade on another kind of corner, a strange intersection in a shadowland called the Twilight Zone. The concept of the horror host is also very rooted in horror culture, not just through anthology TV shows, but also then, you know, with um, Elvira. Hello, darling. Yes, sirree. It's Lilo me, that gal with a shape that drives me Elvira, mistress of the dark. The show, as you know, is moving macabre. It also kind of harkens back to a lot of the kind of campfire side element of it of someone telling you a scary story in um in creating that spooky atmosphere and i did kind of always have in mind to host it and to be kind of that voice that would lure you into a story but that every story would be radically individual completely different what scares you the most have you ever walked down a street and felt someone's eyes follow you their stare fixed on the back of your neck Perhaps you're creeped out by certain foods, the sound of people chewing, crunching. One of my kind of uh, key things was to make sure that every single story was a different vibe. It was a different type of horror story, that it wasn't all gory, that it wasn't all more esoteric or poetic, that not all of them were funny, that not all of them were sad. It had to be a mix. This episode, The Ecology of Fear, is written and performed by Marley Sue and explores the animal kingdom of teenage girls. So listen in and find out about the ecology of fear. One that, one that I really liked, because it spoke to a couple of things sound-wise that I dig, uh, Ecology of Fear, right? There are th- there are things in it that I find spooky, but also we've done an episode before on the inner voice and inner monologue, and that is really apparent. And also there's an there's an ASMR quality to that episode as well, and I loved those two elements. Yes, the ecology of fear was. I mean, is Marley Sue? Is it? Is it Marley Sue? Is it? Yeah, it's Marley Sue. Yeah, and that one was in- impeccable to watch her perform it because she effectively delivered about five different performances in one go. I know many breeds of butterflies and I list them in my head, trying to keep my breathing even. Red Admiral. 
because it is very much the inner voice, the inner monologue of a character, but she's also doing all the characters that are seen through the prism of this main character. And there's this lovely, I remember the, the kind of one of the first sounds that happens there. And obviously there's a big animal motif going on through the whole story. And in the text, Marley writes kind of this characters narrating these types of butterflies to herself over and over again, kind of as a self-soothing mechanism. She retreats, melting back into the night, leaving me alone again. And we blended together the sound of a slowed down heartbeat. So a heartbeat that goes from faster to slowing down, kind of to echo that soothing, mixing that with slow down butterfly wings flapping. So there's a lot of animal effects in there that are quite, well, I definitely wanted them to be more subtle than very obvious and screamy and screechy. A lot of the squelching is actually found to be in the writing itself. And the the contrast of her having, especially the main character, having this sort of uh, almost not deadpan, but very calm delivery, especially when she's describing eating people alive, <laughs> is, the, is the like really beautiful contrast of, I don't think this voice sounds fully human and I don't think she is seeing or understanding the things that she's saying in the same way that I'm as a human person interpreting the violence that she's describing. I open my mouth wide and inspect my teeth. A thin, clear piece of flesh is lodged in between my lateral incisors. I dig my nails into my gum and grip it in between my fingers. I pull it and it stretches taut out my mouth. It comes free. I hold it up to my eye, peering through the opaque flesh as if it were my own. The cornea is a clear membrane that protects the eyeball. It's so strong only scalpels and razors can cut through it. I drop it back into my mouth and swallow it whole. When I come back into the living room, Mel is prank calling the biology teacher. Grey hair streak. Viceroy. Black swallowtail. I'm not a music person. Like, let me clarify this. I don't... I love music. Who doesn't? But I don't have the technical language to articulate why something works or why it doesn't. What is a bridge? What is this thing? I don't, I cannot, not in the way that I can with film, not in the way that I can with books. I can't articulate. And to be honest, I want to keep it that way. But I can't articulate the way that I want to something to make me or the listener feel. One of the things when I was working with Mitch, Mitch Bain, who's the composer of all the music on Eerie, all the episodes, who was just a marvel to work with and create a kind of such different styles for each episode. One of the things that I kind of was telling him was like, how do I want this episode to feel? And kind of what is the vibe that it needs to communicate through the music and whether it needs to dominate or underline or whether it needs to be driven by the character or by the story or by the squelchiness or whatever that might be. And I actually pointed him to some things like the YouTube channel Bite Size Nightmares, which is the YouTube channel that the director of Skinamarink had before he made Skinamarink. Constant 
droney, almost echoey sound that he uses. It's like a static. It's a static of an old television. And I don't think this happens anymore in the age of smart TVs, but I remember very vividly like falling asleep and then waking up in the middle of the night and the TV was on, but it's just static. And it's such a creepy noise. It's such a creepy image as well. It's poltergeist, right? It's like this blue screen and this never-ending noise. And if you, like, grew up with this, like, I remember sometimes, I don't know what this says about me, like, looking at the static and be like, am I seeing an image there? And I wanted that specifically for a few episodes, particularly Fishers. I wanted there to be a constant, ever-present, static drone noise to the point where when there's a moment of silence in the episode, the listener would, would need to wonder, like, oh, did something happen to my headphones? Did something pop in my ears? That this noise that was always there is suddenly not there. Is there a heaven? I'd like to think so. This is a kind of a random reference, but I always had it in my mind. This Roxy Music song, which I love, called uh, In Every Dream Home a Heartache, which has the most vicious lyrics about essentially a sex doll it's only a saying from to but it has this very ethereal kind of build up and then drops very aggressively that drop was something that I constantly thought of in every single episode it was like how do we have this twist? And I'm not talking just about a narrative twist, it's more like a mood twist. Like, how do we get to this point, build up to a point, and then it's like, oh, fuck. I want the oh, fuck moment that happens in that song. I've always been trying to wedge this into any conversation I've ever had on this subject, and I know very few people have seen the movie, but obviously I was talking about, I want to talk about sound and things that speak. A film where a sound is literally centre is a film called Pontypool. Can you tell us what happened? What's happening there, Ken? I mentioned this in an email to you, so I've got a love of a few things, remote eye stations, remote radio stations. Um, maybe you could sort of sum up the sort of the plot of, of Pontypool. So in Pontypool, it's set in a remote Canadian radio station where a late night radio show host who's kind of a, a bit of a mess but effortlessly good at his job, but kind of despondent, um, suddenly becomes aware that there is uh, people are becoming zombies around them. They kind of start invading and they start uh, contaminating, kind of infecting the people at the radio station. But obviously they're in the soundproof booth. So they're kind of protected. And he's all this time broadcasting about what's happening. And he realized that the reason people are becoming zombies is because they're infected by a particular sound, which is such an interesting concept for a zombie movie that you can become transformed or infected by a sound.
And obviously, this is a man who whose entire work and kind of personality is wrapped out in words and language and in broadcasting of language. So it becomes this perverse kind of, do I shut up now? Is that what I do? I don't think I can do that. And let me just go out in the way that I've always loved my life, which is talking. There was this great Spanish thriller slash horror film that I screened last year that was about a Foley artist. Something kind of ruptured in her life where she started hearing real life out of sync. People would start speaking like 30 seconds after they've uttered the words. Everything about her life, about her perception of life was out of sync. And I think actually the film was called Out of Sync. It has this real eeriness to it because you never think of the world's sounds not matching up, not just completely disappearing, which is, you know, deaf people have this experience. It's about the sound being there, but out of order. And I found that very eerie. Also, this incredible Mexican horror film called Huesera, The Bone Woman, that also came out last year. I remember being genuinely petrified by the sound in it because the main thing, and it's in the title, the main eeriness of it is the cracking of bones. And this character who's a a, a first-time mother, she's uh, newly pregnant, she starts kind of seeing visions and hearing things. And this specter starts appearing to her and you don't see it, you hear it before you see it. So you start hearing the cracking of the bones. But imagine like 50 knuckles being cracked at the same time. And because of the way that they've sound designed the film, you're kind of doing this. It's exactly how you feel watching the film. I remember that had a much bigger effect on me, just the sound of it, than any viscera or any gore that you can put on screen. It's the sound of it. I think with sound and horror, especially with body horror, which is a subgenre that I love, when you're playing around with sound, you can evoke so much without actually showing anything. And when you're working with low budget and stuff, you can bring so much stuff up, especially if you're essentially amplifying sounds that people are familiar with in a daily life. You know, everyone has ground their teeth at least once or, you know, broken a nail or cracked a bone or something. But if you multiply that, that becomes demonic, so harsh. My chest rises and falls with each breath. Up, down. One. In the shadows of the bedroom, there is a faint scratching. Asleep. Gemma's episode, Ganjin, there's a bit of centipede action, right? Listen, let me tell you, I ended up in the weirdest places of the internet. They're trying to find up-close recordings of centipedes walking, which is the actual sound that is repeated throughout that episode. Scratching and tapping on the floor. I make my way back to the bedroom, turning the lights on as I move through the house, looking under the tables and rugs, cautiously searching for the root of the noise. Someone in kind of a completely silent studio environment recorded the sound of centipedes walking. 
and we used that <laughs> as the basis for that episode and repeated it and replicated it and stretched it out and condensed it. And Mike, the editor who also did the sound design and the, the effects kind of before handing over the episode to Mitch to layer the music over, did not tell me that he had a thing about centipedes, so he was not very happy <laughs> about that episode. <laughs> Thanks to Anna for speaking with me. You can find Eerie, of course, wherever you get your podcasts. The same goes for Anna's other podcast, Final Girls, which is excellent and has been for a long time. And you can find unlikable female characters in all the best bookshops. This episode was recorded, produced and sound designed by me, Tom Wally. Thanks for listening. Yo, T-Bone, did you produce this? Sounds good, right?